There were two Christian martyrs historically that you probably have never heard about. They were young women, 22 years of age, Perpetua and Felicity. They lived during the early 200s, and the emperor at the time in Rome was Septimus Severus, and he basically launched an all-out persecution upon Christians. He heard about these two women. Felicity was the slave of Perpetua. She was nursing a young infant, and Felicity herself was pregnant eight months with a child. Well, because of their Christianity, they were going to be thrown in the arena where they would be killed by the wild beasts. In fact, Perpetua's father, who wasn't a Christian, was so grief-stricken about his daughter taking a stand for Christianity, she was unequivocal in her commitment. She would not equivocate in the least. Here is a conversation that we know historically she had with her father. Father, do you see this vase here? Yes, I do, he said. Perpetua replied, could it be called by any other name than what it is? No, he said. Well, so too, I cannot be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. And so she went to the arena with Felicity, her slave, and several others, what they called catechumens, who were young in the faith, and they all stood for their conviction of Jesus Christ. And of course, the Roman audience was thirsty for blood, and they wanted to see these women killed, and so they stripped the women down naked, if you can imagine that, and threw them in the arena. And there were several stages before they were martyred for their faith. And after they were attacked by the wild beasts and they survived that first round, here is what Perpetua said to her other fellow comrades in the faith, quote, you must all stand fast in the faith and love one another and do not be weakened by what we have gone through, end quote. They ended up cutting their throats and they died. Or for example, you look at Rachel Scott, who was the girl that gave her life for Christ at Columbine in Colorado back when that massacre happened at that high school. Those two young men went on a shooting rampage and killed a bunch of students there. And the testimony says that when Rachel Scott was confronted by one of the killers, he said to her, do you believe in God? And she said, yes, I do. To which he replied, you're going to meet him today. And he put a bullet in her head. Both of these martyrs for Christ were willing to take a stand for Jesus Christ. They were bold in their faith. And the reality is we all struggle with boldness at times. We have opportunities to speak up for Jesus and we don't. Or maybe take a stand among our peers. Being bold is not always necessarily preaching the gospel. It could be standing for truth. And we all wrestle with it at times. In fact, I went to the dry cleaners this week to turn in some shirts and I was in there alone, and the woman behind the counter was there, and I felt the still, small voice say to me, share the gospel with her. And I struggled, because I dealt with fear just like you. What is she going to think? What is she going to say? And so I decided to take a risk, and I got in a conversation with her, and I said to her, if you died tonight and stood before God, and he said, why should I let you into heaven, what would you tell him? And she said, because I have trusted in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior which was a great response, and I told her that's the right response, but then I said, are you living for Jesus? Are you bearing fruit in your life? And we had about a 10-minute conversation, and I challenged her in her faith. But like you, 
I struggle at times sharing my faith. There are times where I've had opportunity to stand for truth, and I haven't done it before. I've remained silent. Now, some Christians say, well, if you don't stand for Jesus Christ and you're not bold in your faith, God is going to deny you on the day of judgment. And the verse they often use to justify this belief is Matthew chapter 10. Maybe you've read this verse before, and it has scared you. In Matthew chapter 10, it says this, whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Some Christians say, well, see, Jesus says here that if you deny him, he's going to deny you on the day of judgment. Well, Jesus here is referring to salvation. And he's saying those who are presented with the gospel, who reject the gospel message and do not want Jesus as their Lord and Savior, God on the day of judgment is going to disown them and say, hey, you rejected my son, therefore I am going to disown you. And so this verse is not saying that if you in a moment of weakness deny Jesus, God is going to disown you. If that was the case, none of us here would make it to heaven. Furthermore, Peter, the head of the church, not the pope of the church, but the leader of the church, he denied Jesus three times, and yet Peter, we know, was a believer who God mightily used. And so here's the question. How can you and I grow in our boldness for Jesus Christ? How can we become more confident and again, this doesn't mean that we're to walk up to every person, grab them by the lapel, and say, do you know Jesus? This doesn't mean we're to be a bull in a china shop. Obviously, we want to be winsome. The Bible says, be wise in how you deal with outsiders, non-believers. Paul said, let your words be seasoned with salt and with grace. And so timing is always an issue. But how can we grow in our boldness? Well, I invite you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1, and the title of this message is The Characteristics of a Bold Christian. This is message number three. We took a break over the Christmas season, and now we're back into the book of 2 Timothy as we go through this letter verse by verse. Now again, just to remind you of the context, Paul was in a dungeon called the Mamertine Prison. His first Roman imprisonment, he was under house arrest, and he had some mobility. People could come and go. He got less loose out of his first Roman imprisonment, and then he did a fourth missionary journey. At the end of that fourth missionary journey that we sort of piece together from his letters, Paul gets rearrested, but this time he is thrown into the Mamertine Prison. It was a dungeon. And he didn't have a lot of the amenities that he had in his first Roman imprisonment. And so Paul knows he's going to die because at chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, he says, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I've run the race. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. Paul knew that he was going to die. And so he picks up his pen and writes his swan song, his last letter to Timothy. Timothy was all the way in Ephesus, and so they were thousands of miles apart from each other. Timothy was his son in the faith, and so he writes this letter to motivate Timothy. Timothy was a type B personality. He was timid. He struggled with fear. He wasn't a type A personality like Paul. And so he began to disengage from being bold. Timothy was pastoring, as it were, the church at Ephesus, and there were high-powered false teachers there that were basically intimidating Timothy. And so Paul has to write 1 Timothy to instruct him on basically how the church should run. But now in 2 Timothy, because Timothy was disengaging, was neglecting sort of his spiritual gifts, Paul writes to motivate Timothy and challenge him to be bold. 
and not to be ashamed. In fact, in chapter 1, he tells Timothy four times, do not be ashamed of our Lord. Do not be ashamed of our Lord. Be willing to suffer for the gospel. And so in chapter 1, what he does as he motivates Timothy is he gives us the characteristics of a bold Christian, or we could say it this way, how can you and I become more bold in our faith? Well, the last time we looked at the first seven characteristics, let me review them with you because we haven't been in this book for a while, and then we'll look at point number eight for this morning. First of all, the first characteristic of a bold Christian is they remember godly servants from the past. If you remember in chapter one, Paul said to Timothy to motivate him, he said, Timothy, I serve God with a clear conscience like my forefathers did. Who were his forefathers? Well, the Old Testament saints. And Paul is saying, look, I'm in a long line of Old Testament saints where I'm serving God just like they did. And the implication is he's challenging Timothy. Timothy, I want you to serve God just like our ancestors did in the past. You know, one of the greatest ways to develop boldness is to read about other Christians in the past and see how they served God. Because when we see their faithfulness, that galvanizes us. When I read the story about Perpetua and Felicity, and I read a lot more detail, I just gave you the shorter version. You know what it challenged me on? My faith. And I realized how soft I am. Because if I was challenged with martyrdom, what would I do? A second characteristic of a bold Christian is they pray for others. Paul said to Timothy in chapter 1, he says, I pray for you, Timothy, night and day. And no doubt Paul was praying for Timothy that he would be bold in his faith. If you want to be a bold Christian, listen, you got to be a praying Christian, not just in emergency situations. you got to be a Christian that is devoted to prayer, and you need to be praying for boldness in other people's lives and have somebody pray for boldness for you. That's why I suggested to you several weeks ago, develop prayer partners. Find a prayer partner this year who will pray for you weekly or daily that you would grow in your boldness. There's a third characteristic by way of review of a bold Christian, and that is this. They develop loving, accountable relationships. They develop loving, accountable relationships. Paul said to Timothy, he said, Timothy, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Listen, when you're suffering and you're at the end of your life, the thing that matters most is not material possessions. You know what matters most is your friendships and your family. And Paul wanted to see Timothy. He says, I remember your tears, Timothy. Probably when Paul got arrested, Timothy cried, and he said, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. Listen, Paul and Timothy were comrades in ministry. They sharpened one another. They traveled on missionary journeys. And so there was a built-in friendship and accountability. You want to grow in your boldness for God? You got to be connected to other Christians. Not just Sunday morning, but in small groups, one-on-one discipleship. One of the weaknesses in the American church is we are very independent. We're not interconnected with other people. And listen, when you're connected to other people, iron sharpens iron. It helps you to be accountable, and it will help you grow in your boldness for Jesus Christ. Then he gives another characteristic by way of review of a bold Christian, and that is this. They are a genuine, committed believer. They are a genuine, committed believer. Paul says to Timothy in chapter 1, he says, Timothy, I am reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your mother Lois and your grandmother Eunice. And he said, I'm persuaded, Timothy, you have a sincere faith. In other words, Paul knew that Timothy was a committed believer. He wasn't a phony. 
He didn't show up to church and sing songs and then go home and live like the devil the rest of the week. Timothy was a genuine believer, and Paul is using that to motivate him, to challenge him and say, look, Timothy, you come from a godly heritage. Your mother and your grandmother were godly, and they passed the faith down to you. And Timothy, I know you're a genuine, committed believer. And so based on that, I'm asking you to re-engage. And so listen, if you want to be a bold Christian, you cannot be a half-hearted Christian. None of us is perfectly committed, but if you're a Christian that straddles the world and Christianity, and you're really non-committal, you just want fire insurance, listen, when the test comes in America, if you're still alive, and there is coming a test in America, I don't know when. We're getting more and more hostile in this country, obviously, but there is coming a test. We are moving towards the end times. If you're not a committed believer now, what makes you think you're going to stand the test when the big test comes? And so God wants committed believers that are genuine, that are not fake. Why? Because on the day of judgment, Jesus is going to say to many people, depart from me, I never knew you. You were a phony. There's another characteristic of a bold Christian, and that is this. They exercise their spiritual gifts. They exercise their spiritual gifts. Remember he said to Timothy, he says, Timothy, because of your godly heritage, he says, I want you to stir the flame of the gift of God. Timothy began to neglect his gifts because of his intimidation. And so Paul says, look, I know you have a spark there, Timothy. I want you to take lighter fluid and I want you to ignite your gifts. What gifts did Timothy have? Well, he had what? The gift of evangelism. He had the gift of teaching. He had the gift of leadership. If you want to be a bold Christian, start with serving and using your spiritual gifts. What are your gifts? How are you involved at Northwest Chapel? And it may not be in the building on Sunday morning. It may be out in the world. But listen, God doesn't want wallflower Christians who sit soaking sour. He wants people that are involved, that are serving, that are using their spiritual gifts. He gives another characteristic by way of review of a bold Christian, and that is they rely on the power of God. He says the famous verse in chapter 1, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-discipline. And then he says to Timothy, Timothy, be willing to suffer for the gospel by the power of God. He mentions the power of God twice. And so here's a principle. If you want to be bold, you cannot be bold in your own strength. You've got to be a spirit-filled Christian. You have to be a Christian that is controlled by the Holy Spirit moment by moment. You're going to fail. You're going to sin. That's why we confess our sin and we allow the Spirit of God to control us. Listen, you're either a carnal Christian or you're a spirit-filled Christian. If you're a natural man, you're not saved. And so you got the natural man who isn't a believer, and then you have the Christian, and there's two types of Christian. You have a Christian that is a Spirit-filled Christian who walks in the Spirit, produces the fruit of the Spirit, and then you have a carnal Christian who is saved, but they're controlled more by their flesh than they are the Spirit of God. And some people even question whether carnal Christians are saved. I think they are based on 1 Corinthians. But listen, if you're going to be bold you got to be a spirit-filled Christian because, again, if you're a carnal Christian, you are not living for Jesus Christ. You're not going to be bold in your walk with God. And then he gives one final characteristic by way of review of a bold Christian, and that is they expect to suffer for the gospel. He says, Timothy, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. 
In other words, Timothy, don't be ashamed, but be willing to suffer. And here's a principle that if we're going to be bold, we have to develop this mindset. The mindset is this. If I'm a Christian and I take a stand for Christ, I'm going to be persecuted. I got to expect it. First Peter chapter 4, Peter says, do not be surprised by the fiery ordeal which comes upon you as though something strange were happening. Peter says, look, don't be shocked or surprised if you're persecuted for your faith. I'm online debating people all the time, and you know what? I can't tell you the names that I've been called. And I'm not saying that to pat myself on the back. It's just the reality in a hostile world. People have told me to drink bleach. They've told me to go to hell. All these things they tell me because they don't like the truth. But listen, we have to have the mindset that if we stand for Christ, we're going to suffer. And that's hard for us as Americans because we've been conditioned by prosperity. We've been conditioned by ease, comfort, and pleasure. In fact, when a person became a Christian in the early church, they didn't teach them health and wealth and prosperity. Here's what they taught them. Acts chapter 14, Paul was revisiting the churches that he had planted, and here is what he said to the new converts. After they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and Antioch. That would be the Galatia area. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and here is what they said to them. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Notice he didn't say, hey, now that you're a believer, God wants you healthy and wealthy. That's not to say God doesn't bless with wealth. It's not to say that God doesn't heal. But it's simply to say their mindset was different. A new Christian, when they went to class 101 on Christianity, it was, hey, expect to suffer for your faith. You see, if you and I are going to be bold, we have to develop the mindset, not a martyr's complex, not that we're looking for suffering, but we have to develop the mindset that this is part and parcel of being a Christian, that I'm going to suffer for my faith. Before the glory, there is the cross, and we all struggle with that. Well, there's an eighth characteristic, and here's where we pick up for this morning our new lesson and that is this, if you want to be a bold Christian, you must fulfill your assignment or your calling. You must fulfill your assignment or your calling. Notice, if you will, verse 11 of 2 Timothy chapter 1. He says, and of this gospel that he preached, I, and in the Greek, that's emphatic. Paul is really focusing in on himself here. He says, I was appointed. Circle that word appointed. That word appointed means that Paul was given an assignment. He was given a commission. He says, Timothy, of this gospel that I'm preaching, the reason I'm preaching it is because I was given an assignment. I was appointed, and he says in verse 12, that is why I am suffering as I am. Now you say, well, what do you mean Paul was given an appointment? Well, remember, Paul breathed out murderous threats against the church. He hated Christians. He was convinced that Christianity was a lie, that Jesus was a heretic. And one day as he's going to arrest Christians, Jesus appears to him and basically knocks him off his beast and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And right at that point, Paul was given his assignment. He was to be a missionary to the Gentiles. And when Paul stood before one of the Roman kings, King Agrippa, when he gave his testimony, he said, Agrippa, when God knocked me off my horse and I saw Jesus Christ and he gave me my commission, he said, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. In other words, Paul was compelled to fulfill the assignment that God had given him. Now notice what he says he was appointed to in verse 11. He says, and of this gospel, I was appointed to be a what? A herald. 
Now, a herald was someone who would proclaim news in that day. They didn't have newspapers. And so the person like today that say, extra, extra, read all about it, they would make a verbal proclamation because they didn't have newspapers back in that day. When a dignitary or king came into town, they would, a herald would proclaim it. Paul says, look, I'm a herald of Jesus Christ. I proclaim the message of Christ. That's why I'm suffering. And then he says also my assignment was to be an apostle. An apostle is someone chosen with a special commission, and they're sent out by God. Paul was an apostle. He had authority. He was given direct revelation from God. So when he wrote the Bible, it wasn't his opinion. It was God speaking through him. And as an apostle, he was a church planner. He says, that's why I'm suffering as I am. And listen, Paul planted churches all throughout the Roman Empire. He says in Romans 15, he says, I've preached the gospel from Illyricum, which was in the north, all the way to Jerusalem in the south. And that's why he suffered. And then finally, as he looks at his assignment, he says, I'm not only a herald and an apostle, but I'm also a teacher. A teacher is someone who takes the truth of God's word and explains it to other people. And so Paul says, look, I'm suffering because I've been given the assignment or the calling to be a herald, to be a teacher, and to be apostle. And he's saying, that's why I'm suffering as I am, Timothy. And the implication is, Timothy, you have an assignment. God has given it to you, and you are to fulfill that assignment. Now, fast forward to our time. Everyone in this room who names the name Jesus Christ has been given an assignment by God. Every one of us here has a calling from God. You say, I don't have a calling. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a missionary. Listen, we often associate calling and assignments to pastors and missionaries and people that are in higher up in the church. No, every one of us has a calling or an assignment from God. Now, you can take your assignment and divide it into two categories. There is a general assignment and there is a specific assignment. Now, all of us have a general assignment. So we don't have to figure out, all right, God, what's my assignment? When it comes to your general assignment, the Bible makes it clear. Here's what your general assignment is and mine, to make disciples of Jesus Christ, to lead people to Christ, to disciple people. That doesn't mean you're going to lead everyone to Christ or you're going to disciple everybody, but your general assignment is to make disciples. Your general assignment is basically to love your family, to be a good spouse, to be a good employee on your job, to be salt and light. That's your general assignment. If you're a mother, it's to raise godly children. If you're a father, it's to provide for your family. Whatever it is, God has given us all a general assignment so we know what we should be doing. But here's where we all struggle. Specific assignment. God, what do you want me specifically to do? And here's the deal. Not all of us get that encounter like Paul had where Jesus appears to us and says, here's what I want you to do. Listen, when I got called to be a pastor, I didn't have some mystical experience. I didn't have a vision where Jesus told me what to do. Mother Teresa, I read this week that when she was 12, she ended up entering into the nunnery, and she was a teacher of kids. She felt like God called her to that. Well, when she got into her 20s, she had a vision of Jesus, and Jesus appeared to her and said, I want you to leave your teaching post, and I want you to go to the slums of Calcutta, and I want you to minister to the poor there and preach the gospel. And so she left and she went. It would be easy if all of us got our assignment that way specifically, but more than likely, most of us are never going to get that kind of encounter. You say, well, Mike, how do I find my specific assignment? Here's how you find out. What are your spiritual gifts? What are your natural talents? How are you wired? 
That's how God gives you your assignment. Find out what do you like to do? What are you good at? What are you passionate about? And that's where you get involved, and that's how God use you, uses you. Now listen, we all have different assignments, and we all have to realize that our assignment is unique. Now some people ask me, well, how did you figure out that you were called the pastor? I didn't have a mystical experience from God, but you know what? When I was in college and I recommitted my life to Christ, I began to develop a hunger for the Word of God. My major was psychology. I switched it to the religion department at Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama, and I began to study the Bible, and I began to develop a hunger for the Word of God. And then God used Charles Stanley and John MacArthur to influence my life. And then people would say, well, Mike, you have the gift of teaching and the gift of evangelism. That came natural to me. And so over time, I was convinced that God wanted me to shepherd, and I said, God, unless you tell me otherwise, this is the only thing that I want to do. And to this day, it is the only thing that I've done. It's the only thing that I'm passionate about. I've been doing it for 25 years. And you know what? I didn't get some mystical experience, but over time, God showed me my gifts and my passions and my gifts, and I began to use them for the Lord. Here's the problem. A lot of Christians in the American church, they want to come to church, they want to do their Sunday duty, they want to give God in the offering plate, they want to go home and they don't want to get involved. Again, that comes to that lukewarm Christianity that has one foot in the world, one foot in Christianity. You want fire insurance, but you don't want to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Listen, God doesn't want fans, He wants followers. A fan is someone in the stadium cheering the 22 men in the field who are doing all the work. God wants followers. He doesn't want fans. And that's how you find your assignment. And listen, don't compare your assignment to someone else. We all can do that. Lord, why wasn't I gifted that way? Why do I have this assignment? Listen, there are Christians suffering overseas for their faith. And you know what? I don't want their assignment. Some of them probably say, hey, why can't I have his or her assignment? I'm reminded of Peter. Do you remember post-resurrection, John 21, great story? Basically, Peter, uh, Jesus made breakfast for the disciples. They were out fishing, and Jesus put together a fire, and he had locks and bagels. And uh, they came, and he said to Peter, remember Peter denied him three times, and so Jesus is going to ask Peter three times, do you love me? He says, Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said, tend my lambs. And then the third time, he uses a different Greek word. He says this, Peter, do you love me? Yes. Do you love me? Yes. Third time, he says, Peter, do you even like me? Ooh, that was like a dagger in the heart. Do you even like me, Peter? Peter was grieved, it says. And then Jesus said, if you love me, Peter, he said, follow me. And he said, by the way, Peter, when you were younger, you were footloose and fancy free. You did what you wanted to do. But now that you're older, you're going to be taken where you don't want to go. And then John gives the commentary, and he says, Jesus spoke of the manner of death by which Peter would die. In other words, what Jesus is saying to Peter is, if you follow me, Peter, like I'm asking you to, because you claim you love me, follow me. And if you follow me, Peter, you're going to die a martyr's death. You're going to be taken where you don't want to go. And we know from history that Peter was crucified upside down. Now, I love it. After Jesus said this to Peter, you know what Peter said? He said, what about John? What about him? And Jesus said to Peter, to use the common vernacular, Peter, it's none of your business. You follow me. Quit worrying about John. 
Now, we know John ended up dying, not a martyr's death. All the disciples died martyr's deaths except for John. John ended up getting banished to the island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation. But tradition says he came back. Now, they tried to boil him in oil according to tradition. Domitian tried to boil him in order oil, and it says that while he was in the oil, he was taking a bath. In other words, God protected him. So he realized he couldn't kill him, and so he ended up letting him go. And so don't compare your calling. So whatever your calling is this morning, if you're a college student, be faithful in that calling. If you're a mother, be faithful in that calling. If you're a worker, wherever you work, be faithful in that calling. And listen, get involved using your spiritual gifts. You say, well, Mike, I don't know what to do. Listen, step up and do something. It's easier for God to maneuver you if you're involved doing something than sitting stationary and not doing anything with your faith. Well, there's one final point for this morning if you and I are going to be bold Christians, and that is this. We must trust in God's sovereignty. We must trust in God's sovereignty. Notice, if you will, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Here's what he says to Timothy. Timothy, that is why I'm suffering as I am. Because I'm an evangelist, because I'm a, a teacher, because I'm an apostle, that's why I'm suffering as I am. And listen, Paul could have been disillusioned because if you read 2 Timothy chapter 4, all of his friends abandoned him. It's kind of very... Um, there's a macabre sense in chapter 4 when you read Paul... He almost seems like he's defeated, but yet he's not. He says, even though all have left me, he says, the Lord is with me, and the Lord will give me strength. So Paul was going through some difficult times, and yet, look what he says. He says, yet, this is no cause for shame, because I know, and that Greek word there means to know something experientially. In other words, Paul didn't just know about God. He knew God intimately because God had revealed himself to him, and Paul had walked with God all these years. So he says, I know from personal experience whom I believed. And the Greek indicates that he believed God in the past, and he's going to continue to trust God regardless of what happens in his life. He says, Timothy, I trust in the sovereignty of God because I know the God whom I believed in. And I know, look what he says, he is able to what? And I am convinced that he is able to guard. That word guard is used of a soldier who stands his post. He says, I know that I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him on that day. He says, I trust in the sovereignty of God despite the fact that I'm in the Mamertine prison in a dungeon. I'm about to have my head cut off. Because listen, if you were a Roman citizen, they couldn't crucify you in Rome. And so he knew he was going to get his head lopped off. He says, in spite of that, Timothy, I am convinced that God is able to guard what I have entrusted to him on that day. By the way, the Greek word entrust means to give something to somebody of value, of value and ask them to watch over it until you return from a trip. For example, my daughter sitting on the front row and my son-in-law, when I was in South Carolina a couple months ago, they said, we're going on a trip. Could you watch our house and the dog? And so I watched over their dog. They have a chocolate lab. That's not him. They have a chocolate lab, and he is wild. When you run in the door, as soon as you walk in the door, he's all over you. Now, imagine if they came home, and the house was a wreck, the house was torn down, and the dog was gone. Obviously, they entrusted their possessions to me that I would watch over it. 
and that I would be faithful. Unlike with me when I was in high school, I had a couple of buddies, and one of them had a boat. You ever seen those uh, John boats that they have and the engine in it? And uh, uh, me and my buddy said, well, we'll take this because Miami has an intricate canal system, and I would go in the canals, and we would fish. I said, oh, no, we got your boat. We're good. We'll take care of it. Well, I was sitting behind the engine, and I was doing like this, and I got too close to the bank, and I overcompensated, and the boat went, and it turned over. And my friend had a jam box, and the jam box got wet, and it was going because it got wet, and it was being electrocuted. Now, I should have been grieved that this was happening, and my friend was in the water crying, somebody help us. I was going underwater laughing. I was like, I'm just a depraved person. I was laughing at my buddy crying out. And you know what? When we brought the boat back, the engine was ruined, and my friend started crying because we ruined his boat. I didn't take care of something that which was important to him. Paul says, I've entrusted to God something very important to me, and I know the God whom I believed in. He's sovereign. He's going to take care of what I've entrusted to him. Now, here's a $64 million question. What is it that Paul entrusted to God that he knew God would take care of? Two things. Number one, his soul and his circumstances. He knew that God was sovereign, that God would bring him into his heavenly kingdom. And so Paul trusted God, whether in life or death. He said what in Philippians 1? For me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. And Paul knew God was sovereign over his circumstances. He could trust God, whether in life or death. You know, Florida State didn't make the playoffs, and there was a big controversy with that. And um, their star quarterback got injured. He was a great quarterback. Jordan Travis is his name. And here is what Jordan Travis said when he was in the hospital, and I had to write this down. Just want to let you all know that I'm doing good, feeling good. Got a smile on my face. Just going to follow God's plan. And God has a journey for me. Going to trust Him every step of the way. I appreciate you all for all the messages. Go Knowles. End quote. In spite of his circumstances, listen, they probably would have made the playoffs if he was not injured. But in spite of that, he says, you know what? I'm going to trust God every step of the way. So Paul says, look, I've I know my God, and I've entrusted to him my soul, my life, and my circumstances. There's one other thing Paul entrusted, and that was the message, the message that God gave him. He entrusted it to God. You say, why? Paul was concerned that the message was going to be diluted. That's why he said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, Timothy, the message that I give you, I want you to pass it to faithful men who will pass it down to other faithful men who will give it to other faithful men. Why? Because the truth like today was being convoluted. It was being corrupted. And Paul was trusting God that the message that was entrusted to him, as he passed it down, God would preserve it. You say, well, Mike, how do I know he preserved it? Because you and I are sitting here today. Now, there were seasons in church history where the message was eclipsed. For example, when you look at the medieval period during that time when the Catholic Church was the one monolithic institution, during that time the gospel was eclipsed. It was the dark ages. Why? Because the gospel was suppressed. But God always had his remnant. He had Luther, he had Zwingli, he had John Calvin, he had Savonarola, he had all these lights, as they are called, during that dark period, and then God used Martin Luther to spark the Protestant Reformation where the gospel was restored. 
It was eclipsed, but then God brought it to light. And listen, you and I are the product today of the gospel message, the Protestant Reformation. So yes, God did preserve the message. Paul was concerned. So those are the two views as to what Paul was entrusting to God that was very valuable to Paul. It was his life and his message. And so as we close, here's a principle. When you and I are bold for Christ, sometimes things happen in our life. And sometimes we have to trust God's sovereignty, and that's not always easy. Christmas Day, I was talking to Uname, who plays bass up here. He's from Africa. He's in southern Nigeria. I read on Christmas Day in northern Nigeria, a hundred Christians were slaughtered for their faith. Now, what do you say to a mother whose husband and children were murdered And you say, trust in the sovereignty of God. That's the only thing you have because now she's bereft of support. Sometimes life is difficult. We don't always understand, but Jesus never promised us that everything would be a bed of roses, but we have to trust in the sovereignty of God. That's what Paul did at the end of his life. He knew. He says, my departure has come, but he said, now is stored up for me the crown of righteousness. So listen, if you're going through some deep waters, if the bottom has dropped out and the roof has caved in, I want to encourage you this morning to trust God. You may not be able to trace his hand, but you can always trust his heart. And sometimes that's hard, especially when you go through deep waters. And so what do we learn this morning? The one characteristic of a bold Christian is they know their assignment and they fulfill it. And then secondly, They trusted the sovereignty of God. Come back next week, and we'll look at the final two or three points on how to be a bold Christian. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word, and I thank you, Lord God, for your truth. Help us, Lord, to be bold Christians for you. Help us to take a stand. Help us to do it with grace and love, but, Lord, to take a stand. I pray, Father, that you would strengthen us this year. Give us favor at Northwest Chapel as we reach out into our community. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you're visiting this morning, don't forget we have Next, which is a class. It's very brief in room 131. Marty is going to give you information about the church if you want to find out. And so thank you for coming this morning. God bless you, and we'll see you next week. Go Washington. Sorry. Screen.